I think it's worth discussing what art does stand the test of time because most things will not matter to anyone in 10 years, let alone 100 years or 1,000 years. I, I think he had six novels by the end, 5,000 poems, hundreds of short stories. Me thinking I'm a better writer in the abstract means nothing. All these people, like, they see Hemingway and they want to be the next Hemingway, but they're not actually living. My inner artist just was a little muted. I didn't have articles I wanted to write. I didn't have things that I was, like, just bouncing off the wall saying, like, I need to stay up till 4 a.m. and make this now. The reader can sense the energy that you're bringing to a project. There's some serious wisdom in that. Some of the best music ever created was created in like an hour from start to finish. When you're gone, are you going to be happy that, that that's the you know thing that reached the most people? No. Exactly. So I don't know. Go create something that makes you feel alive. Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Bukowski. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about Steph's dad, husband. <laughs> I don't know who it is, but it's Charles Bukowski, the writer. Charles Smith. Let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So today we're talking about the myth, the man, the legend, Charles Bukowski, who Cal has gone deep with over the last couple of weeks. Maybe it's worth just quickly starting for those who maybe recognize his name, but don't actually know who the hell this person is. Cal, who is Charles Bukowski? <laughs> what a question, Steph. I never thought I'd get one so deep. <laughs> <laughs> Bukowski is a writer. He's a poet as well, but he was born in the 1920s. So great depression era. And then he ended up dying in 1994. But he made it much later in life and ended up being a really prolific guy. And I think someone who, in some ways, inspired a lot of poetry and prose after him because he had a pretty unique style and story. And actually, he's become somewhat well-known in part because of Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That book, the very first chapter is called Don't Try. And he gives in the story of Bukowski. And actually, on Bukowski's graves tombstone, it says, Don't Try. And there's a story behind that from a letter in 1993. But wait, I didn't know that. So did he did he choose that for himself? I don't know if he chose it or someone else chose it to live on his legend. But in 1963, he wrote a letter to this publisher guy who was also a novelist. And he was like, somebody once asked me basically like, what do you do? How do you write or create? And he said, you don't try. That's very important. Not to try either for Cadillac's creation or immortality. You wait, and if nothing happens, you wait some more. It's like a bug high on the wall. You wait for it to come to you. When it gets close enough, you reach out, slap out, and kill it. Or if you like its looks, you make a pet out of it. And so he, you know, writes like that, which is just sort of this like brutish, funny tone, but it is quite hilarious that just on his tombstone, all you have is Charles Bukowski, don't try. <laughs> Don't try. I feel like you've been telling me more about Charles Bukowski for the last couple of days. And sometimes as we dive into those conversations, there's so much good stuff. There's so many little nuggets of wisdom that I just basically wanted you to stop telling me about him in those conversations so we could record this because I think there are just some like deep truths about the way humans engage 
over time. And he had strong opinions about not just writing, but the way people engage with art. And in some ways, I think we're all artists, but we forget that. And I think he was very attuned to that. So maybe just super quick before we go into all of Bukowski's wisdom, how did you come across him? And like, what are you reading? Like, what's gotten you so excited about this man? <laughs> yeah, so I don't know where I heard about him, but he's pretty famous in in the land of writers and also in popular culture. There's lots of references to him as well. But I first read his book, Post Office, which I think was his first novel earlier this year. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. It was decent writing, kind of a funny tale. I mean, he just is like a total savage in the way he writes. He writes about relationships with women, alcohol. And in this case, he's just diving into the really deep, depressing details of his time as a post office worker, where he was just like a slobby drunk and just puttering around the world and ends up almost suicidal. And so it's not like a heartwarming tale that I would necessarily recommend to people, but you get a flavor of his writing. And then six months later, I was in a used bookstore and I saw a book called On Writing by Bukowski. And it drew my attention because it features letters that he wrote to friends, magazine publishers, poetry publishers, and like his agent over time from the 1950s through the end of his life in the 1990s. And they're just like letters of him talking about his work. I think they're selected so that you hear more of his thoughts on writing and creation and all of that. But I finished that book uh, fairly recently, and I just found it fascinating. It inspired me to get a typewriter, which we can talk about why that was. And now I'm into what people say is his best novel, which is Ham on Rye, and it's about his childhood. So I'm just sort of diving deep. And actually, the more I learn, I'm not saying this is like a stand-up guy that you should necessarily take a lot from, but I think there's some interesting lessons from just how he approached his life and creative work. I think at the very least, and I'm saying this as someone who has not read Bukowski at all, but from what you've shared with me, there's some deep humanity in his writing and his stories, which I think gets lost, especially as writing over time has become more accessible and more people participate. And there's all these, you know, there's courses on writing and there's all these people who are like, oh, this is a profession and you can make money online. And, you know, there's Twitter payments and all this stuff. There's like a formula that people have oriented around. And you even see it in like the top nonfiction business books, right? Or personal development books. And it seems like he was very, just did not buy into any of that. In fact, didn't you say that he kind of shat on a bunch of the really famous writers of the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, one, he would probably hate this podcast, what we're doing here <laughs> and trying to break things down. But yeah, so he, I think he was like decently well read, but like he had strong opinions even about like Hemingway. Some of his influences were Celine, John Fonte, Hemingway, Dostoevsky, Henry Miller, D.H. Lawrence, and some Chinese poets. Even these people who he gives a lot of credit and whose inspiration you see in his work, he says things like Hemingway was decent in the beginning, but then he became obsessed with his craft and he just you know went to the madhouse and just started producing shit for the rest of his life because he became such a, a person that was tied to his craft and the way he did it. And Bukowski resisted all of that. He just thought that you should sort of say whatever comes out. And so he would sit at the typewriter, just absolutely wasted deep into the night. I think he didn't start writing till like 9.30. He'd write until 3 a.m. And he wouldn't like do a lot of rewriting or anything like that. And he never sat with poems. He'd just like send them off. He had, he had a very different approach than what you see today in like how to write type of material. He thought that was all just baloney. <laughs> I think 
what I can offer as someone who has not read as much of his material is the reflection on some of his statements as they relate to today's world. Because while so many things have changed since and so many more people can write online and the internet has completely changed even the economic equation for participating in that world, there are still so many truths where you see a lot of people engaging in the same way as they might have 20 years ago, 50 years ago, even when the technology was different, even when we went from typewriter to computer to cell phone. So as part of that, it seems like he had maybe like 10 or so lessons that you felt like were really strong. And maybe we just like go through each of those. And if there are certain quotes that you've pulled that relate, maybe we can even use AI. I mean, I wonder what Bukowski would think about AI, but maybe we can use an AI tool to actually make it sound like Bukowski's here with us. Let's do it. And why don't we start with, we've already touched on, I think, one of the lessons, which is generally, you know, people who try to teach the craft. So this is a letter in 1984. He says, What I'm getting at, though, is that some of the few who began so well, they teach, they are poets, they are poets in residence. They wear nice clothing. They're calm. But the writing is four flat tires and no spare in the trunk and no gas in the tank. Now they teach poetry. Where did they get the idea that they ever knew anything about it? This is a mystery to me. How did they get so wise so fast and so dumb so fast? And he has so many comments like this where he's just, he's shitting on all these people who have become teachers. They write one good book. They start believing in their own goodness. They start thinking that they're somehow masters of this craft and in this world. And he just didn't see writing that way. He thought it wasn't really that teachable. It's not actually that hard. You just sit down and put your thoughts on paper and he sees this dynamic, especially because he was in the world of poetry where people do these like haughty readings and they take themselves really seriously and they spend endless time trying to make things sound good. But at the end of the day, they're not kind of what he thought was like the pure creation, which is people who sit down and write. I'm trying to figure out where I fall in terms of, I agree with a lot of that, but then I do think there's value in learning from others. I do think there are are things that I've learned from other writers over the last few years that I didn't know. And had I not been exposed to those concepts, maybe I wouldn't be as good of a writer. But then I think ultimately at the core of what he's saying, there is a truth, which is that a lot of people, and I've caught myself doing this too. I mean, we have courses, you do something and then you do it well and you get positive feedback. And then all of a sudden you actually go and retreat from doing the thing and switch to teaching the thing. And again, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with being a teacher, but then you actually often lose sight of the thing that you were doing in the first place. There's that dynamic. So it's actually you go teaching and you stop doing, but then there's the other piece, which is, I think one of his advice is like, you need to play it loose with poetry, with playwriting, with writing books, whatever it is. He's like, you know, when you read a book about poetry, they give you, Hey, you need to have this or that. And that's what makes good poetry. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to write a play, a play has to ha- have a premise. And he had one quote that was something like, you know, I don't want to read that because then I'm not going to create the thing that I wanted to create in the first place. Like I want to keep it loose and just let it flow. And I think actually, though, to understand his perspective, it's worth noting his background shaped this whole idea. The guy was like completely broke, an alcoholic, 
I guess, till the end of his life. He had a really tough childhood. He grew up in the Depression era. And he didn't succeed commercially in any way. Like, I think he said he made $47 over 10 years until he was in his like mid 50s. And so he was just out there, like actually living the starving artist life. And I think a lot of the commentary today is not just like, how do you do peer creation or how do you write in ways that are lined, but it's how do you make a living online, which is mm-hmm. a, to me a fundamentally different question. I think one of the main takeaways from my deep dive into Bukowski is actually separating, you know, how do you become good at writing or whatever it is that you want to do? And then there's the sep- second piece, which is how do you make money? And I think a lot of the conversations that people have actually mix those two things and you get into this money dynamic in your mind, which is balancing craft with commercial viability. And that yeah. can take you away from what maybe he would call like the essence, which for him was to write so that he didn't go insane or s- become suicidal. Like that's why he wrote, he says. And I do think that's so important, which is why I've voiced in the past that even though it sounds very romantic to take what you might consider your passion or your art form and turn it into a commercial entity or project, because ultimately those two things are different. They can be aligned, but like the thing that fired you up to write something and share with the world may not be the most commercially viable concept. And you're trying to fit that square peg into a round hole often ends up sacrificing the artistry rather than the commercial viability, right? You like force that side of the equation. And I think as soon as you orient around commercial viability, you also just have so much less tolerance for failure. So then you make everything safe. Like you said, he he said to continue playing it loose. You like find an equation or a framework and you just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And those are the same frameworks that teachers teach, right? Because it's just like packaged, easy to understand. But if you think about the best art, it often doesn't fit into any sort of framework. Yeah. And it's also completely unpredictable. Like yes. what, what the good art ends up becoming. And even if it is ever recognized, like how many people have done amazing work that is probably in the archives of journals that have never been read or how many people were recognized like after their death for the good work they did or just never recognized ever yet. And maybe someone will pull it up a hundred years from now. I think just another thing quickly before we dive too much into Bukowski you can look at like his philosophy and be like, wow, this is like pure, this is good. But at the end of the day, like in studying him or reading him, in no way do I want to be him. Like he led a life that I have no interest in doing. It's so misaligned with what I wanted to do. Like he seemed like he was on the, the precipice of, you know, suicide and madness and just complete alcoholism for his whole life. So he's not like some, you know, guy who had it figured out or something like that. But there is, I think, just interesting takeaways you can see from someone who, went more of this pure starving artist route and ended up getting recognized in some way. But again, that's why I think he would say this podcast is shit. He's like, you can't break (laughs) this down, you know, go on living, like do something interesting. No, no, I agree. And I think it's worth also discussing what art does stand the test of time because most things, this podcast included will not matter to anyone in 10 years, let alone a hundred years or a thousand years. And so I think There is just this ethos of purity, and maybe he wouldn't articulate it that way, but it's just like, you are this being that exists at this very instance in time, and you have ideas based on your lived experience, things that are are happening around you. And in some ways, sometimes we forget that the concept of writing or podcasting is 
just a mechanic. It is just a tool for you to be able to get like these ideas in your head out there. Some of them may be shit. Some of them may suck. But what most people do is they add a middle layer because we've been taught to do that, to like massage it, overly edit it, craft it so it's perfectly soundbitey for Twitter. And like none of that's going to last. There are a few things, I don't know what they're going to be, that are just like so core to human nature and our understanding of each other and humanity and the way that we all exist together. Those are the things that stand the test of time. Another piece is like creation doesn't have to stand the test of time either to be good or useful. And if we use this podcast as an example, the primary motivation for why I do it or why I enjoy it is because it's just fun to be able to talk about a wider set of ideas that I may want to talk about in writing or other forums. And just to, I don't know, share that for the last two weeks, I've just been on this bender about this random guy that maybe someone hasn't heard of. And there's something just inherently fulfilling about that as well. And I don't know. So I, I think sometimes people get too lost in this. Oh, people need to see my thoughts or it needs to make money or something like that. I actually discovered a website today on a recommendation from a friend. And it was hilarious because it was like from this engineer. He had poems, he had fiction, he had like letters to himself. It was just like a hodgepodge of mostly garbage, like the garbage <laughs> that you'd find in the archives of my journal. But he had a, a few bangers in there that were interesting. But I just thought it was cool that he was publishing that online like that. Yeah, I think actually I have fallen too deeply in that direction myself of overly curating, overly restricting myself from posting things. Because as soon as you get any sort of prior quote unquote success, even if it's very small in nature, like I've had a few articles over a short period of time that all trended on Hacker News. And some people would be like, what a wonderful thing. And in retrospect, to me, I think it actually was a terrible thing for those things to happen in sequence over a short period of time where all of a sudden there was this expectation of myself that had brewed. No one else created that for me, where all of a sudden I was like, oh, everything I write now must be good. Everything must be curated. Everything must be of the quality that could you know, get tens of thousands of views. And that's just not the case. He has this one passage, I'm not going to quote it directly, but he's basically saying like succeeding early is often the death of a lot of people and it's better to sort of fail for a long time because it keeps you loose. And the analogy he uses is like, if you come out pole vaulting 15 or 16 feet the first time, everyone, including yourself, if you believe it, starts to expect you to get 17 feet the next time. And really you should be happy or proud with 10 or five or whatever it is. And that's how you stay loose which is to not believe all the bogus that you need to produce good stuff. And um, whether that's expectations that other people actually have for you or that you have created for yourself based on some modicum of success. Mm -hmm. I actually think identity is also important here where I'm trying to now see myself more as an artist and that maybe sound really self-absorbed, but like what would an artist do here? Like they would explore they would pick up a new medium, you know, maybe like a watercolor painter picks up some oil paints one day or pastels or sculpture material and they just play around and they get inspired by the world and they ship something and they send it to a museum and they get rejected and, you know, eventually something hits and someone sometimes maybe even a hundred years later sees something that they created and they think, oh, wow, like this is amazing. 
this must be shown to the world. And we talked about that in the Yayoi episode as well. Just like sometimes it's just about you creating and some sort of luck in the world coming together where people discover your work at the right time. But orienting around like what you want to create, I think is embedded in the term artist. Even if you are not a painter or a singer or something that people view as inherently artistic, you know, if you're creating a website, like you're an artist, if you're creating your personal website, what do you want to show to the world? If you are even, you know, a marketer at your job, it's like, how can you be an artist again? How can you still take the concepts and the best in class learning that you know about CTAs and things happening above the fold? But also just be like, I'm an artist here. Like, I'm going to approach this project in a way that I'm proud of and that I'm crafting, I guess, in a way that it also excites you, like your inner, your inner artist. Yeah. And I think Bukowski would say all of what you just said is hokum. <laughs> he, would, <laughs> he, he, would, he would say, like, don't think of yourself as an artist or he didn't even think of himself as a writer. Like, here's a little quote. He said, writing has saved me from the madhouse, from murder and suicide. I still need it now tomorrow until the last breath like he literally wrote to prevent himself from going insane and he just he's like very skeptical of anyone who like wants to be a writer like even that alone well that's kind of my point so i I think the idea of labeling myself as like a writer or a marketer or a developer i think those identities can be problematic because not only are they constraining to one thing I think you view them more as professions, but I view the term artist as more like, who is your inner creative? Like what wakes you up and makes you want to to produce something and do it in a way where what you're producing is as closely aligned to what you'd like to see in the world. An example from Twitter, because I spent too much time there, is just I can tell, or at least it feels like I can tell when different people post there. There are a few people where I'm like, you thought of this five seconds ago and you posted it and it's like this little tunnel into their brain and it's very cool to see. And then there's other people where I'm like, oh, I know you've probably drafted this months ago. You probably copied it from Wikipedia. You probably oriented it because you even know what kind of bullet points to use. You've crafted it for this platform instead of it being this direct replica of what you wanted to say in the first place. And I would argue that the dynamic that you're talking about is harder to wrestle with in the modern era versus when Bukowski was alive. Because if you think about what he had to do to produce and get his art in the world, in this case, writing, he had a typewriter. Mm -hmm. He would just type a poem late at night. He did not have a copy of it. And then he would send it off to like various magazines or later his agent and just be done with it. He didn't rework it or anything like that. I'm sure he reworked his novels to some capacity. But he just went on creating, and that's why he was so prolific. Like, I think he had six novels by the end, 5,000 poems, hundreds of short stories, and you know some of them were good, some weren't. But he didn't have this choice of, should I post a little snippet of this on Twitter so I can see if people like it? Mm-hmm. Which is, by the way, a really common way that people talk about writing good books that are commercially viable. They're like, don't just sit in a hole and write the book for three months, because you could just share what you wrote this week see what people resonate with, and then use that feedback to improve. And it's almost like applying what I would think of like sound startup principles. You don't just want to build a business in a cave. Uh, You want to iterate on it. And obviously, it needs to solve a a problem. And so go out and talk to people and get that problem solved. But 
they're just kind of two fundamentally different approaches to creation. And I would argue that you have to figure out which one works for you and what your goal is in the first place, because people have done both things. Well, I think it all starts, like you said, from what are you trying to accomplish? Because if your goal really is a commercial success, I mean, I've given that advice before, as in to put a seed out there and validate whether something is what people really want. But to your point, that's more of a startup mentality if you're looking for commercial success. Yeah. And Bukowski would not be a fan of you. (laughs) No, Bukowski. We've already talked about Bukowski would have tuned out of this podcast a long time ago. But maybe we would have never tuned in. The man only listened to classical music. It's (laughs) It's actually funny. Before we go to the next point, like this basically encapsulates most of his life. I always write with the music on and a bottle of good red and smoke Mangalore Ganesh Beatties. The whirling of the smoke, the banging of the typer, and the music. What a way to spit in the face of death and to congratulate it at the same time. Yes. Wonder what he'd be like to hang out with. He hated hanging out with people. That was an interesting thing. He's like, I hate having people around because when I'm not writing, like they chat and what I really need is silence. Like he had this one story where some starving artist was like, hey, can I stay with you? And he even liked the guy, but he's like, nah, I'm a loner. And he gave him like his last five or 10 bucks to go stay somewhere else because he so didn't want to stay with anyone. He gave the other guy his money yeah. so that he could get him out of his hair. Yeah. And the other guy ended up becoming successful down the road and they remembered that story. But I mean, he really was true to like not wanting to be around people. Some people call him like a cynic or even a misanthrope. He did have various like lovers and uh I mean, many people would argue that he was like a womanizer and uh, that's clear in a lot of his books. And so he's just like, this flawed character who, again, I don't think you want to be like he is not <laughs> an example of the message that you and I have put out, but it doesn't mean you can't learn from him. Yeah, I think that's the lesson. I think almost anyone you can learn from, even if they're deeply, deeply flawed. But on that note, let's just quickly summarize some of the concepts. And you wrote down nine of them here, so I'm going to highlight a few. One of them is teaching is an early, arrogant death. Another one was failure helps you stay wild and loose. Another one I feel like we touched on was that he writes for survival, not recognition. And maybe we can talk about a few more here, which I think really resonate with me. The first one is good art shakes you alive. And the second one is bland living is bland writing. So why don't we start with the second one? I I think his thoughts on this are pretty interesting. You know, the main problem so far has been that there has been quite a difference between literature and life, and that those who have been writing literature have not been writing life, and those living life have been excluded from literature. What he's saying there is basically there's all these people who want to be writers, but they sit in these like beautiful homes and Mm -hmm. they have their fancy cigars and they have their nice clothes And they actually don't have all that much that is interesting to say because they're not out living in the world. And so Bukowski had one form of living. Like I think he had many dozens of blue collar jobs. His his first book, Post Office, as I mentioned, was based on, you know, his story of working as a post office worker for many years and being an alcoholic while doing that. And a lot of his work feels, I think, for for many people alive because it is this form of like dirty realism. I think a lot of people see the blue collar life or the lives of poor Americans described in his work. And and really the truth about like what a madman has to say about writing relationships with women, alcohol, et cetera. 
And there's something that feels just true to it, even if you find like him as a person or his life disgusting or unpalatable. And his claim is just that all these people, like they see Hemingway and they want to be the next Hemingway, but then they go out and they're just not, they're not actually living. And I Mm -hmm. personally had this experience where when we were living in Encinitas, I felt like we had a pretty, I guess, good life. And it wasn't that we weren't living, but there was something stifling about just being in, you know, a nice town with not too much conflict and lots of free time and all of that. Yeah. I think upon reflection, that is why there are phases of life that you look back on and you're like, I was so busy, but I accomplished so much. And I think it's because when you have so much going on, that just stimulates you and you're just truly inspired. And to your point, Encinitas for me was the opposite. In fact, I remember at one point, it was a few months into the pandemic where it was clear that one, we weren't going anywhere. And two, there wasn't much to do. And basically the takeaway for me was like, oh my gosh, I have so much time to create. Like, I remember this being in like maybe mid 2020 thinking, you know what? It kind of sucks that this pandemic thing is happening, but look at all the time I have. Like I could probably bang out a bunch of side projects. I can, you know, learn all these new skills. And I think the last three years has been probably my least, you know, efficient or whatever you might want to call it period, at least in terms of side projects. And now that we're talking about it, I think it's probably at least somewhat to do with the fact that I just wasn't inspired. It's like this big well of time, but nothing to fill it with. So I would slice what you said a little bit differently, which is, I would argue that you had some of your most prolific periods during this time. You wrote a book that did really well. We created a course that did pretty well. You've done (laughs) phenomenally in your career. And so this idea of like some sort of dry period is not true. What I think you're actually speaking to though, is the like the inner hollowness of maybe not exploring certain threads and expressing as what you were calling whatever your inner artist wanted to do. Yeah. And that maybe that's a part of, you know, I got caught up in trying to make things commercially viable, or maybe I was just really bored in this place. And I channeled that energy in ways that I'm not as proud of looking back on. I'm not sure, but I don't think it's just that you weren't prolific. I guess to your point, though, it's not like my inner artist was screaming, saying, hey, go create these projects, and I didn't do it. My inner artist just was a little muted. I didn't have articles I wanted to write. I didn't have things that I was like just bouncing off the wall saying, like, I need to stay up till 4 a.m. and make this now, which was the case when I was just doing more in my life, uh, especially during the nomadic period. And it's not so much I need to replicate that, but even, you know, if we go back and listen to our SF episode where we discuss why we moved here, I think I said something along the lines of like, I think both of us are more creatively stimulated than we have been in years. And I think it's just being around people, being around interesting things, stumbling upon the good, the crazy, the incredible that all exist in a place like San Francisco. And so I do think now it's like my inner artist is emerging and it's at this interesting inflection point where in some way that inner artist is like, now it's screaming, like, go create all this stuff. But it's also somewhat reflecting on like, oh my God, you had three years. You could have accomplished so much because now we have so much to say. But, you know, I think it's a function of where we were and how inspired we were. So, I mean, what is it that you want to do now? You'll have to wait and see. Okay. 
Wow, that cliffhanger. Okay. Well, maybe it'll be so good that good art will shake you alive, which is the second nugget. What does that mean to you? Why did you write that down? Well, I wrote that down because it's it's almost a direct quote. He said, The only thing intelligent about good art is if it shakes you alive. Otherwise, it's hokum. Hokum being my favorite word that I used. I was going to say what this podcast. <laughs> you've used it twice and I let the first time slide. What does hokum mean? Basically nonsense. It's like when people are speaking in a corporate meeting and they're just using all the buzzwords and you're like, okay, so you're saying we need to fire people <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, it, they're, they're really not, it's, it's nonsense, I think is the equivalent, but you see it in different forms. It's like, you really should go out and create something that does make you feel alive. And I, a piece of writing advice I've heard very often is like, the reader can sense the energy that you're bringing to a project. So if you're having a lot of fun writing something, mm -hmm. your prose actually may be like less polished or not following the rules, but there's some of that energy transfer that happens to the reader. And that could be true for art as well. And there's an aliveness to it that I think is a piece of you creating it. And I'm having this experience a little bit now with, I bought a typewriter a few days ago. And for the first time in many years, I'm just writing poetry. And I don't know a lick about poetry. The whole thing is sort of inspired by Bukowski because the way he talks about the typewriter, he's just like, I stayed sane by just the sound of the typer. <laughs> and I really am starting to get what he's saying. And, and the typewriter's producing, again, like a new medium for me, poetry. I don't know if it's good or bad or anything else, but there's not this desire to like go rewrite it or anything. I'm, I'm actually just like putting words to thoughts that I've had before, just things that are randomly emerging. And it does in some way feel more alive to me, even though clearly because I don't know anything about good poetry, it's not going to follow any principles. I think your poems are pretty good. Do you want to read one right now? Which one? Maybe the one about your mom. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sure. So I guess just a quick backstory is that I had this one like long rant in a journal many months ago, but it was about this dissatisfaction I had with the fact that now that it's been five or so years since my mom died, I can't really remember her laugh and I don't have any videos of it. And it was just like a really powerful thing. And so it was a journal entry and then it came out like pretty much just first shot as some sort of a poem called One More Roar. Let's hear it. Wait, wait, wait. Read it like you are at a poetry reading. Oh, my God. So <laughs> actually, before I do, Bukowski hated poetry readings. He like barely <laughs> did them. He's he's like, these guys are just actual hacks. Like they take themselves so seriously. They should be writing more poems like they're sitting here being all self-important at their poetry readings. And I think he did a few, but he hated all of them. And he was always drunk at them. Okay, but anyways, okay. I Imagine you are Bukowski sitting at home reading it to his own typewriter. <laughs> I don't know if I can slur my words that much, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Her laugh roared during the good times and especially the bad. I remember its effect, an infectious and unsettling thunder. I remember its causes, odd characters and off-color humor. But I can no longer remember the sound. The cackle is no more. Mom is no more. I would give it all to hear it again. Just one more roar. I think Bukowski would have liked that one. He might have. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's more the truth. It's not pretentious in any way. Maybe that's just we'll we'll call like our pretentious meter just the Bukowski meter. 
you know, you got your like angel and your devil on each shoulder. Instead, you got the Bukowski on one shoulder just being like. Is this what you really want to say? Are you using fancy words when you don't need to? Are you over editing this? Which, by the way, can we talk about that? Um, The role of the typewriter. And I think something that is clear so far in the like 72 hours that you've owned this device, that the mechanics actually do influence your ability to create. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it yet, but there's something like that is just exciting me beyond belief about the typewriter. I think, yeah, I don't want to over-intellectualize it, but there's something really powerful about the clacking of the keys, the actual effort it takes to hit them versus a computer, not having the delete space, having the little ring of the typewriter that happens when you approach the end of a line, actually seeing what you create physically on a page and being able to hold it in your hand. There's like some magic that's happening that is really fulfilling a desire that I have to create without distraction and to create without any of the, I don't know, desire for commercial viability or anything other than just to see what my fingers create on the page. There's something really fulfilling about it. And I don't know if I'm going to write essays on it, uh, journal entries, poems. I don't know if I'm going to share it online. I don't know any of that yet, but I'm finding myself just drawn toward it almost more and more and more. And it's it's really cool. There's something really interesting about the scarcity and intentionality that is different from digital writing, both in the sense of it takes more effort. So you have to really think about what you're putting on the page and if it's worth putting on the page. But also, I think the underrated aspect of typewriting is how hard it is to edit. And in some ways, that can be a good thing because even we met with this typewriter man in order for you to buy one, which, by the way, maybe we'll do an episode around that in the future. But he framed it really well where he basically was like, if you try to write, let's say, a book or some longer piece, if you do it on a typewriter, you'll just keep going versus if you do it online, you'll just get stuck in like two or three pages. You just edit it and edit it and edit it. And try to refine it to the point where, you know, you've probably lost your ambition or excitement around the piece overall. And you actually wrote down this lesson from Bukowski, which is rewriting creates polished lies. I don't know if those are perfectly related, but there's something there around. Again, if you actually have something to say, there's a seed in your brain and writing is just a conduit to say it. And then sometimes we get lost in the polishing of that seed that it never actually grows. Yeah. And that is so easy to do on the computer. Like you can move sentences, you can delete them. And in fact, actually, one thing I'm noticing is the computer writing versus typewriter on the computer. You could be on a call typing because it's so easy and you're so familiar with it. You're not thinking really. You're just sort of in a, a trance going through the motions, if you will. And I find that with some of my articles too. Like if I'm not really deep in a flow state, I'm just sort of putting words on paper and I'm like, oh, I'll like get back to like rewriting this later. But on the typewriter, you don't have that experience. You literally just have the writing. The device exists just to do that. Besides the fact that there's no distractions, like you just have this forward momentum. And even as something as simple as I tried writing my to-do list at the beginning of the week on the typewriter, and I think it took me probably four times as long, but I really thought about everything I put on that list. There was a higher cost to putting it there. 
And I think I came up with something that was overall better and like closer to what I actually wanted to do during the week, just by the simple like friction. And so lots of interesting pathways and use cases. And I don't know, right now I'm just doing Bukowski style. Like my meters just have fun, like hear the, the clack of the keys and see what happens. I think there's something worth reflecting on there because I'm in no way trying to detract from the, quite frankly, amazing ability for all of us to publish online and to do so at such low cost and such high quantity. But like you were even telling me that Bukowski, he also happened to be super poor. He had to be really intentional about what he was writing, but then also where it went if he was pitching a magazine or if he wanted his stuff to be featured somewhere because there was that inherent scarcity. And I just think about the dynamic today, which you could say is objectively better, your ability to pitch anyone around the world, to be published and reach everyone around the world. But at the same time, I think about like taking photos, for example. I have so many photos on my phone that like I will never go through all of them. And in fact, the sheer quantity of having so many means I actually don't engage with any of them, if that makes sense. Probably if I had a film camera, would have 30 photos that I absolutely love versus 3,000 photos that I will never look through again. So I don't know. There's It's not necessarily one is better than the other, but there's something kind of wise about the inherent scarcity that comes from tools of the past that we can learn from and maybe use in certain circumstances. Well, I think the like best answer in the modern world is actually to use both tools. So there's many yeah. things for which I have to do that I would not want to use a typewriter, like just shooting off emails. That would be really annoying. But, you know, for maybe engaging with my thoughts and trying to create something, maybe the typewriter will have some use case. But the combination of the two is what is fairly interesting to me as like a way to become more prolific and or to expand into new art forms that would have otherwise been more difficult. And it reminds me a little bit of we really enjoyed owning a Polaroid camera for the last few years and taking that around and having a smaller selection of photos to either give away or have for our own collection that we do engage with from time to time. And you see many people gravitating towards these older machines, I think, for many reasons. But, you know, one of them is to counteract some of the maybe hitting costs of the digital age. Yeah. And I think it's worth playing with some of these tools even if it's just as a reminder of how far we have come digitally, because when you were talking about the typewriter and how Bukowski would have to send copies to magazines and he might not even have his own copies, it actually threw me down this rabbit hole of just understanding the way technology around copying has advanced. Like, During our generation, the copywriter was invented prior to everything being just like infinitely replicable digitally. But before that, there were some machines that, you know, you would have like the carbon copy. But before that, there was humans. There was literally copyists or sometimes they were called scriveners. These people were hired because there was no mechanical way to copy something other than just have another human replicate it. It's kind of interesting just to reflect again on how far we've come, where now anyone born in the last like 20 years wouldn't even dream of the idea that they couldn't just copy their ideas infinitely. But that actually was not always the case. Yeah. And I mean, it's so obvious to say that, but then you actually feel it 
when you start to use these machines. And I don't know, like there's been a couple times now I've had this damn thing for only like 72 hours, but where I'm really grateful to have the keyboard and the digital age and the connectivity, like it makes me appreciate it in a slightly different way. I don't know if that will last over time. And that's the real question here is like, is this just a fun experiment? If so, like that is worth it in and of itself. Or is there something more here? Okay, so quick question there. You have mentioned that Bukowski loved the sound of his typewriter. Do you think that's just because he really enjoyed getting drunk and going into this deep, dark hole and creating his form of art? Or do you think it's actually something inherent to the typewriter? Because like, imagine Bukowski was born 50 years later. Would he have the same affinity for like a Mac keyboard? The answer is no on the Mac keyboard because I haven't really heard of that. Like maybe a developer really likes seeing lines of code appear on the screen and then translating that into something physical. Like I I would maybe liken it to that experience, like translating your code into a website or functionality. That's similar to the typewriter where you're translating the manual effort of the keys into a physical piece of paper that you can see as our friend, uh, the typewriter man (laughs) told us Mm -hmm. you're tattooing ink on paper. Um, But I do think that there is something satisfying about uh, working with your hands, hearing the sounds, and then seeing it and being able to hold it physically. It's probably similar to like woodworking. I know a lot of technology people are into that, but really just, you know, there's something deeply unsatisfying about the digital experience that many people feel, and they look for different outlets to reconnect with the self. And I think the typewriter sort of makes you do that in some way. Okay. All right, we've got a few more key takeaways. Should we just bucket these all together? Sure. Well, I think they are actually related. One of them is avoid rules, write any way you please. Another is you're only worth what you can write today. And the final one is fill the well when the words aren't there. So it's all about like getting something on paper and the value in doing that, even when it's difficult. On the, you're only worth what you can write today. What he was really trying to get at is these people who have like written a book and they got famous and they're no longer writing or they're just writing garbage and they call themselves a, a writer. But he really sees it more like, you know, a heavyweight champion in the boxing ring. You are only as good as your last fight, mm-hmm. right? You can't rest on the laurels of your previous experiences when you get in the ring. Like you're just going to get creamed. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's more, more clear in boxing. But he has one quote. Take some poets. Some start very well. There's a flash, a burning, a gamble in their way of putting it down. A good first or second book. Then they seem to dissolve. You look around and they're teaching creative writing at some university. Now they think they know how to write and they're going to tell others how. This is a sickness. They have accepted themselves. It's unbelievable that they can do this. It's like some guy coming along and trying to tell me how to f- because he thinks he f***s good. We can bleep that out for the kids. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's really crude with his language, but he's getting at something that is is very true, which is maybe how you feel about your writing. Like you haven't written an article in many years. You have some bangers from the past. People really like them. I don't even know if you want to write anything anymore. Maybe that was just so good because it was just a part of that epic of you traveling, of you coding, of you learning how to create online. And like that time has passed. The point is, you can't just say you're a good writer because you had those articles, at least according to Bukowski. It's what you can and what you actually do do today. That's all that really matters. 
No, I know. And I, I feel that way deeply. The longer I go without writing, at least something that I release publicly, the more I feel like a fraud. And fraud has such a negative connotation. So maybe that's not the right term. Like I'm not lying to people, but I do feel like an imposter. And I'm, I, you also start to doubt yourself because you're like, can I do this again? And that becomes a little bit cyclical in nature too, because you just like, you just become further and further away from the reality of when you did it. And realistically, I just need to start putting stuff out there again. Like his, earlier lesson about just being wild and loose and being okay with some stuff just being bad. And quite frankly, what's interesting is I've done a lot of writing in the meantime, just for other companies or for my job. And I actually think I'm a better writer today. And I look back at some of my old articles, even some of the really popular ones. And I'm like, what? Like, this is, you know, this isn't great. And I know I can do better. But to his point, you're only worth what you can write today. Me thinking I'm a better writer in the abstract means nothing. Right. Well, maybe you are a, a better writer. And I, I guess in part, you're thinking about it from the reception of other people because people have praised you for your work. But, you know, channeling my inner Bukowski, he'd, he'd be like, don't believe any of that. Like, unless the words jump out of you, forget it. That's a quote he has. Yeah. I also think part of it is I I don't want to just see myself as like a good or bad writer. I want to A, be able to express my ideas, but B, also be able to reinvent myself and surprise myself and not just be a certain type of writer. Like I look at some of my old work and I, I don't necessarily want to write the exact same way. And I think about the artists that I respect, whether it's in music or writing or otherwise, the artists that I want to be like are the ones who do reinvent themselves, who don't just have one hit or one album and then forever just like make a slightly different duplicate of that. I mean, if you get back at it, you're probably going to be different than you were before because you as a person are different than you were before. And I think it's only if you sort of play it safe, you know, let's go back to his vice of play it loose. Playing it safe would be just, oh, I write this type of content. People know me for this. I do it in this way. I'm just going to do that again. You know, playing it loose is Steph Smith starts releasing typewritten poems or whatever. It's just <laughs> a totally new flavor if that if that's what comes out. And I feel that deeply too, because I've had a blog for six years and I wouldn't say that I'm like stuck in the way that I write, but there is something about like you have this medium, you have this way of engaging uh, with people via newsletter articles, and it does create like some sort of a constraint, not for me from the perspective of how people will receive it, but in terms of like really reinventing yourself or putting it out there in a new way, sometimes it's difficult to translate that from like idea or feeling into action because you're so used to just working within what is otherwise a narrow box. Like you could, we could both create something that is like wildly different from what has come before. Maybe we should create a Bukowski challenge. I think he would call that hokum as well. <laughs> what, what would the Bukowski challenge be? I don't know, because this does feel very manufactured, but it's like this idea of just every year creating something that you and maybe this part doesn't matter, but other people around you would just be so surprised by because it's so different from what you've done before. I mean, one artist 
I feel like it's so annoying to bring her up because everyone talks about her is Taylor Swift, where if you look at every one of her albums, they're kind of distinctly different. You know, she used to be country and then she went into pop and she did two albums that were more folky, indie. She went back to pop, but it's a little like darker, deeper. So that's impressive because I think not only was the world surprised each time she released a different flavor, I think probably if she were to look back and be like, oh, 19-year-old me could have never imagined doing this. So there's something there in like surprising yourself too. Well, I think this is partially why the people think that the Beatles are so phenomenal. They like, they produce for a relatively short period of time, but their songs are actually quite different if you listen to them. And that it's almost like why they have so many beautiful hits. I mean, there's many reasons, but it's it's really impressive what they did too, especially given the time period. By the way, integrating some of these learnings, we watched a film recently. What was it called? In Search of Greatness. So would recommend it in general, where they just talk about mostly athletics and how some of the greats became the best in the world. But they mentioned the Beatles at one point, and I don't know if you remember this, but they talk about how it was always like their duty to come to practice with ideas for songs. Once they started working on one, they needed to like sit there and finish it. And they said sometimes it only took like an hour to do that. Sometimes even shorter, like 10 minutes. But that relates to that learning about rewriting or constantly polishing something until oblivion. There's some there's some serious wisdom in that. Some of the best music ever created was created in like an hour of people showing up and crafting it from start to finish. You know, what's funny too, is that goes at odds. Let's move away from music back to writing. The most common writing advice is like, get a shitty first draft out there. You're not going to do it right the first time. The real good writing happens in the polishing, the subtraction, the editing process. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that that's still true. But I think there is also a true dynamic where you can over edit, you can over polish. Mm -hmm. And in the case of poetry in particular, this is what he had to say about it, which is where this comes from. It's when you begin to lie to yourself in a poem in order to simply make a poem that you fail. That is why I do not rework my poems, but let them go at first sitting. Because if I had lied originally, there's no use driving the spikes home. And if I haven't lied, well, hell, there's nothing to worry about. I can read some poems and just sense how they were shaved and riveted and polished together. And what he's getting at is just like, say the truth. Like, don't look up the fancier word in the dictionary just because you think it's going to sound better and make you sound smarter. Yeah, and I think there's also some wisdom just around just shipping anyway. And I don't know where I fall on that, but I've been constantly surprised throughout my life in terms of the things that I've created that have hit or not and how that's aligned to my preconceived notion around what should hit or not. And there's also this, you know, it relates to what we're talking about earlier, about creating for yourself versus the world. But if you actually are just like creating for yourself and you're not even thinking about you know, as a marketer, I think deeply about like, where is this going to go? How is it going to be shared? What is going to be the reaction? But if you actually just have the mentality of just like constantly shipping on this website that like maybe people will read or maybe they never will, or maybe they will in a hundred years when they discover this, like some archaeological remains, that is a totally different mentality 
that I think would create totally different work. And it would not surprise me if Bukowski also would be surprised by the things that the world adored versus what he thought was, you know, quote unquote, high quality. Yeah, well, I think you can't predict what people are going to adore. Like you, maybe you can get a loose sense of it, but that, that I think is a directionally correct truth, which is like, in, especially in the long run, like what will people think is great work? Now you might be able to like jump on some culture bandwagon or trends, but what will stand the test of time, what people will resonate with or not. I mean, you probably see this even just with your tweets, like you don't really know exactly what people are going to engage <laughs> with. And like, there's an algorithmic component to it. And a, a lot of that is maybe a distraction, but it depends on your goals because it can also be a good pathway to being successful too. And so I, I actually, don't, I think you can go either way. Weren't you grilling me on my top like tweet of all time? <laughs> grilling? No, I just ask you what it was just so we can remember. <laughs> I'm digging it up. Are you ready? Let's hear it. <laughs> so this tweet has... 92,000 likes, 28.2 thousand retweets, 28,000 people went and said, not only do I like this, but I would like to say this as well. And I'm, I'm kind of being a little facetious here in that, like, it's just hilarious because I think I've put out many better, wiser, more interesting things, but this was it. The tweet goes, my yoga teacher always starts class with this line, quote, congrats, the hardest part is over. You showed up. I feel like this mindset applies to most other things. Worrying about a task often is far worse than the task itself. Starting is the hardest part. <laughs> wow. Good art really does shake you alive, huh? And I mean, how do you feel about like when you're gone, are you going to be happy that, that that's the you know thing that reached the most people? No, exactly. So I don't know, go create something that makes you feel alive. I think that's one of his core lessons. And that's why you would do it. It's, it's not to reach as many people as possible. It's to do it because you have to do it. I agree. All right. So maybe we should just quickly summarize the nine different bullets that you isolated. And then I want you, Cal, to tell me your favorite, the one that really shakes you alive, the one that just has made you go deep into this Charles Bukowski rabbit hole. But first, the summary. We've got number one, good art shakes you alive. Number two, rewriting creates polished lies. Number three, failure helps you stay wild and loose. Number four, avoid rules, write any way you please. Number five, bland living, bland writing. Number six, you're only worth what you can write today. Number seven, fill the well, even when the words are not there. Number eight, write for survival, not recognition. And number nine, teaching is an early, arrogant death. <laughs> Before I tell you my favorite, number seven, we didn't cover fill the well when the words aren't there. Bukowski, outside of just getting drunk and sitting at his typewriter and hanging out with women, he would go to the racetracks in the middle of the day and he would spend a lot of money just betting on horses and he would never talk to anyone. But he claims that that was a big piece of like him just refilling his creative well. And Hemingway had a similar thing where he went to see bullfighting. And so ah. there's 
some sort of through line of these artists over time. I think my favorite though is, or the one I'm going to take away is avoid rules, write any way you please. I just, I'm more and more interested in not, not writing for any other reason than just because I want to and just doing it in the ways that I want to. I've been sidetracked on different platforms, thinking about how it will fit in this package or that package. And at the end of the day, I think the most important thing right now is just to try to be as prolific as possible. And that's probably going to lead to a lot of crap (laughs) uh, in terms of like quality of things. But over time, I think you get closer to your truth and maybe saying what you want to say, and that will be rewarding in and of itself. And that is all that really matters. Stay wild and loose. Yeah. Stay wild and loose. (laughs) I'd like to just end real quick though, not just on the rules, but to say something in my experience, I have not read a lot of poetry. I actually went on a retreat with a poet this year, which is funny because I was Mm -hmm. thinking about how would Bukowski think of David White? And And David White of Bukowski. Yeah. Well, I guess David White is still living, so we could, could ask him. But it's funny because I resonated with both poets in some ways, and David White is certainly more polished, but I think he does speak to truths just in maybe a different way. But I will say, reading the actual poetry of Bukowski, which is something I've been doing alongside reading the book Ham on Rye of late, it's the first poetry where I've like understood it. I always feel like I read a poem and I don't really get it. Like I need some sort of like story behind what this poem is saying or context. Mm-hmm. And his is so simple and so human and so raw that I can kind of understand it. I don't think it's like the most profound or anything like that, but maybe that is what makes it profound. But it made me somewhat more interested in like reading poetry because I'm like, oh, I, you know, I can get it. It just has to be from the right person. That's one of the reasons that a lot of people, quite frankly, don't read poetry is because it's hard to understand. And I consider myself one of those people. Well, we'll have to get you a little Bukowski book. All right. Well, on that note, if you made it this far, thank you for listening. I think we're on episode number eight of our return. We said we'd do 10 episodes and decide if we want to keep this thing going, if this is something people want to keep hearing. So if you've made it this far, let us know. You can go to ratethispodcast.com slash learn and leave a review, or you can just reach out to us. Let us know if you like listening to these episodes. I think our Twitter handle is Sidless, S-Y-D-L-I-S. And let us know what episodes you like, because we've done a whole different assortment of Bukowski to, like, I think we have an episode on animals coming up. We've done tipping culture. We've done the cost of excellence, like just all over the place. But I guess let us know if it's resonating. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening.